We are glad you're with us on this Sunday morning. I'm Mike Colombo and this is Postscripts. Each week on the show, we look at news and politics with our news partners at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Christopher Ave is off this week, but I'm joined by Post-Dispatch editorial writer Kevin McDermott and the paper's Washington Bureau Chief Chuck Roche. In honor of full disclosure, we are recording this broadcast on Friday afternoon before we officially know if Judge Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court. But with that story dominating headlines for the last month, I want to get into the discussion this morning talking about the impact of this process on the institutions of our government. And Chuck, I'll open that question up to you first. Well, I think it was inevitable that we would uh, get to this moment. Uh, this is a 50-50 country. Um, and it's split down the middle or split quite widely on a number of issues for which this was a proxy fight. The abortion rights issue, the issue of uh, presidential power, uh, just in general the issue of, uh, you know, uh, government uh, and the size of government and whatever. And so from the beginning this was, this was sort of a proxy fight leading into the election. The fact that it's coming in an election season I think, you know, just um, exacerbated that. And I think that the real thing that's going to come out of this that we're really going to have to watch is the damage to institutions, both to the Supreme Court and further to Congress and kind of the, um, the ability for, the, for Congress to get anything done uh, in the next uh, you know, several months and all, all over the last two years of this uh, presidential term. Kevin, this issue or this nomination has really touched on so many flashpoints in society right now, from the Me Too movement to the issue of abortion. Uh, it's really one of those things that truly has been unprecedented in some ways, especially with the way that we've seen Mr. Kavanaugh essentially campaign for his job. Um, what has been your interpretation of how this whole thing has come to be? Well, what you just said about about Kavanaugh campaigning for the job, I, uh, that, that was really striking to me, and not just that he was campaigning for the job, but during his testimony, uh, he sounded more like a partisan senator than he did like a, a, as, a, as a nominee. I mean, at one point he was arguing in a very, very partisan fashion about why they were having this hearing. He, he alleged that it had something to do with the Clintons. He alleged that it had to do with anger from Democrats over the 2016 election. Uh, it, you know, we've, we've, I think Chuck's right, we're so divided, we've, we've come, you know, so far to our various corners uh, and things like this that you really have to take a step back and think about how extraordinary that is. I mean, uh, you know, we all, we all watched the Clarence Thomas uh, hearings uh, some years ago, at least those of us who are old enough, and, and some of us remember Bork as well, and, and as divisive as those were, you, you did not have the nominee basically lining up with one party and, and acting, you know, as if he was a partisan and having the party embrace that. I mean, this, the, that, that to me is, when Chuck talks about the danger to institutions, that to me is the most dangerous. I mean, the, the Supreme Court is supposed to be above politics and because of various things that have happened, including what happened in 2016, we, uh, we're, we're not in that place anymore. It, it, it's now part of the political system and it's become very partisan. When it comes to taking sides, Chuck, we have seen Senator Lindsey Graham really step out, uh, not only in favor of Mr. Kavanaugh, but seeming to truly align himself more so with the president now than perhaps he ever had prior to this. 
Uh, do you see Senator Graham perhaps jockeying for a position? I'll throw out maybe a potential replacement for Attorney General Jeff Sessions down the road. Should he uh, either be fired from that position or leave that position? It really seems like he has just come out very strong as a Trump ally throughout this Kavanaugh nomination process. Right. I'll push back a little bit on that um, in, in this sense. The Attorney General position traditionally is supposed to be a non-political position. So. Uh, you know, if he is if he is campaigning for that, uh, that would be a sort of a unique situation. I think it's more along the lines of he sort of sits. He's been sitting in the you know these Republican conferences for a number of months, and and this has been the central gripe over the last several weeks uh, of the, from the Republican side about the process. You know that the Democrats or a Democrat, Senator Feinstein, knew about this. Uh, in July, it was confidential, and she's explained all the reasons why she couldn't do it, legitimate reasons. But, you know, um, the fact that they didn't bring it to the FBI in the, in the first, you know, uh, oversight and the first background check, uh, and, and basically somehow it got sprung late in the process, really did anger a lot of Republicans. Now, you can argue about whether that's legitimate anger or not, but I think he just felt like he wanted to put voice for that. And, of course, there are those out that are out there speculating that he's trying to cover his own base back home and all sorts of things. I mean, you know, there are 50 different scenarios like that running through, coursing through this uh, in particular, including in our own, you know, in our own state with Senator McCaskill uh, and her choice to, to vote no on the nominee. Kevin, I think the larger issue as we move forward here will be how this impacts the midterm elections. There have been a lot of opinions saying it will, it won't. Uh, I recently saw a poll that showed this has emboldened a lot of Republican voters to get out and vote in the midterms compared to numbers from, say, a couple of months ago when that turnout would have been a little bit lower. What do you think the potential impact could be? Yeah, I, I saw a poll to that effect as well. I have to it, instinctively, it seems to me that in terms of impacting the the midterms, it's the losers who are probably going to be more more impacted. In other words, if you get what you wanted, there's probably less incentive to go, you know, angrily stomping off to the polls on election day and make sure that you that you cast your vote. I, I actually think that that uh, you know, assuming you know, if the, if the Democrats lose this one, they well, probably uh, on election day there'll be a boomerang effect, and I think you will see uh, a more emboldened uh, vote by Democrats. Chuck, your thoughts on that issue? You know, there, there's, a, there's an aspect of this that I think people have overlooked, and it showed up in a poll recently. I think it was a uh, Missouri Scout poll or something in Missouri. There, there, people are just angry at the process right now, and I think there's a little bit of bipartisan anger being directed at senators on both sides that are on the ballot this time, not necessarily members of the House, but senators. And in that regard, because Democrats have more red state senators up, there could be an impact in that direction. It showed, for instance, in Missouri that just the process itself was more damaging to Senator McCaskill in all areas of the state except for the St. Louis area. And so that's something to watch for. And I think you've got to look at all, sometimes down, down the down the way in some of these polls and some of these sub-numbers to look at the tr trends and, tr and, you know, sort of what's going on in this. In, in a couple of these other states, uh, for instance, in North Dakota, you know, I think it's the same thing. People, uh, people look at the national picture and look at Donald Trump's 40 or 38 or 42 percent job approval rating, but you've got to understand in some of, our, some of these states, including our own state, he still is nominally above water in, in job approval. All right, Chuck Rosh and Kevin McDermott, we appreciate your time on this Sunday morning. We'll be talking again very soon.
Well, still to come here on Postscripts, corrections officers say there is a crisis in Missouri prisons. Coming up, Fox 2 investigative reporter Chris Hayes will join us to explain how a jury recently sided with officers, yet the state refuses to make any changes. Welcome back to Postscripts. The state of Missouri may be violating federal labor laws while ignoring a jury verdict to pay officers back pay. Fox Files investigator Chris Hayes explains what the pay problem means for an already dangerous system. Good veteran officers are leaving prison work in droves. Many say they've given up on Missouri. Most inmates in Missouri's prisons will be released. That's why corrections officer Tim Huff got in the business. We are responsible for their safety, for their rehabilitation. Hopefully we will guide them into being a better person whenever they leave the facility. Like every other officer, Huff says he shorted pay every day he works. The Missouri Department of Corrections does not count some of the most critical work officers perform. If you don't follow this procedure, it would uh, it would be it would spell disaster. It could be literally life or death for not only the offenders but for the staff that has to respond and work with these offenders. Here's what he's talking about. DOC does not start paying officers when they arrive at work. They don't pay until an officer retrieves their keys, gets their radio, scans their ID badge, goes through search points like x-ray machines, metal detectors, sometimes pat-downs. Some officers walk a quarter of a mile through the prison just to get to their post. It's only then DOC starts paying. Huff says it adds to about two and a half hours a week, and it includes critical communication. You might have a situation where you had a, a suicide attempt, or you have an ambulance actually coming in at shift change, or something like that, where you time is critical. You know, you have a person's life on the line, and you have to know this information. Huff and other officers hired attorney Gary Berger. This case was filed in 2012. They have never paid for this to date, to the date of this interview, Chris. This is not being paid for, despite internal documents, complaints, investigations, a, a, a pending lawsuit by lawyers and a certified class of 13,000 employees, never paid for. A Cole County jury ordered changes in August and more than $113 million in back pay. The state refused. Former DOC Director George Lombardi explained under deposition, it's just the way Missouri operates. I'm going to say this again. This is preparatory activity to get on the job to do the job that you're being paid for, which okay. is on the post. Right. And there are post duties that define what those are. This gets you there. Missouri corrections officers are already the lowest paid in the nation. Many are military veterans. They're the biggest officer force in the state of Missouri with anywhere between four and 5,000 officers at any one time. And they are paid lower and they're forgotten. The state has filed a motion for a new trial, causing yet another delay. The judge said the $134 million plus judgment will continue rising at 9% interest. The average corrections officer will get back five grand in this judgment, with the longest working officer getting back more than $34,000. For the Fox Files, I'm Chris Hayes. Chris Hayes joins us live in studio now to talk a little bit more about this report and what we're dealing with now as Missouri Attorney General Josh Hawley looks at appealing that $113 million verdict. It's really going to be interesting to see how it is handled because taxpayers in the state of Missouri could be on the hook for a lot of money here.
Yeah, we're talking about an interest rate that the jurors had demanded of 9% interest, which would be tens of thousands of dollars every month that they don't pay, $10 million a year. And there are some other elements to this story that have really kind of piqued your interest as it's continued to move on. Yes, in fact, right now the state is asking for a stay. They're asking the judge to totally disregard what the jury has said. And one of the things that the jury said is that in 30 days after their judgment, which was more than 30 days ago, they're to start paying the officers for this work, that you should be able to clock in when you beep in at security that the time clock starts turning. It hasn't. So right now they're still not being paid for this. So they already got slapped for the poor record keeping. They already got told you need to change the system and they're not doing it. And they're telling the judge, don't make us do it because we've got to do it throughout all these 27 institutions. It's going to cost money and they think they're going to win this appeal. You and I were speaking about this before we recorded here today. It in many ways comes down to an issue of right and wrong. Explain. Yeah, so in a hearing recently where the state was arguing that the judge should put a stay, some of the issues they talked about were not about whether or not the officer should get paid, whether it's right or wrong. It all came down to some legal issues, such as whether this was a contract that was decided upon between the union and the state. So it's interesting when you hear an argument from the state that, hey, we shouldn't have to pay this, not because we are going to talk about what's right and wrong, but because legally we don't think we have to. All right, Chris, thank you very much. That's a story we're definitely going to be continuing to follow. Chris is going to stick around with us here as we get into our third segment to talk about some incredible findings by St. Louis police regarding a bridge railing that fell and killed a driver. What officers found and why city leaders knew about the issue and failed to act. That and more when Postscripts returns. Welcome back to Postscripts. A bombshell finding by St. Louis police in connection with a deadly bridge crash last July along Forest Park Parkway. Fox Files investigator Chris Hayes obtained exclusive details revealing the bridge had a potentially deadly problem from the start. City leaders suggested a reckless driver was to blame for knocking out that railing onto a driver below killing her. Police investigators on the other hand appear to be finding the problem is with this bridge. July 23rd, a 21-year-old driver at Lindelin Union lost control and hit the bridge. A one-ton block fell onto a woman driving west on Forest Park Parkway below. It was businesswoman Jan Teresi Mokwa who died, the wife of former St. Louis Police Chief Joe Mokwa. It's a safe bridge. Speed kills. We know that. We see accidents all the time. It's not always about a bridge. Speed. People need to slow down. But speed was not a problem, according to a police report in which the Fox Files was given exclusive access. The report notes the driver who crashed made too sharp of a right turn and was not speeding. Investigators determined, quote, a speed of 14 to 28 miles per hour is highly probable. The posted speed limit here is 25. The real problem? The report confirms the block was not secured and held in place only with mortar. An investigator wrote it would not take an extreme amount of force to dislodge the concrete block and push it forward. Our Fox Files investigation found previous crashes showed city leaders already knew, like this 2012 accident that also involved a vehicle that was not speeding. Judith Diltz was there. It's coasting. It wasn't going fast because he was, he was knocked out. The 2012 report reveals the driver was passed out behind the wheel, completely stopped in the middle of Union and Lindell. I'm blowing my horn trying to get his attention and he never woke up, so evidently he shifted some kind of way as to making the car 
proceed forward. Diltz described the pickup slowly glide into the railing and knock it out onto Forest Park Parkway below. It didn't look like at the rate that that car was going that it would have knocked all that out. It was surprising. She told her daughter it was like deja vu when she saw the July crash. And I told her that was just, you know, just like the one that we had seen. And it's just sad that it happened and it killed this person. St. Louis police investigators are now reviewing internal car computer records and cell phone records of the driver who crashed before releasing the final report. For the Fox Files, I'm Chris Hayes. All right, again, we're joined by Chris here in studio this morning to talk a little bit more about this story. Before we move on, we should note that St. Louis City leaders declined comment, citing an ongoing investigation and an incomplete report. Also, a new report shows that drivers in our area lose more than $2,000 a year because of roads that are not in good shape. One of the things that stuck out to me here is that this was not the only issue that has taken place on that bridge. Sadly, Probably the worst issue, uh, unfortunately, a woman loses her life in this case, but not the only issue. Yeah, and we're going to be continuing to follow this, including obtaining that St. Louis City Police report when it is finalized. Again, they're looking for the cell phone records and the essentially the black box in that vehicle. But we're looking at other accidents aside from the accident that we featured where Judith Diltz explained that a car coasted into the railing. There was another accident where a railing fell onto Metrolink tracks. There was another accident that a neighbor complained about and had surveillance video of the bridge burning because somebody had hit it. So there were several issues. There are issues of cars speeding in that area and people in that area complaining to the city that something needed to be done about speed. But frighteningly with this situation, speed was not even a factor because we're dealing with a railing that is not secured. And they wanted to say in the beginning that a 3,000 pound block would take an incredible amount of speed and force, but this report says that that's not the case. It wouldn't take much to push that. These railings not only were not secured, but the city knew the railings were not secured because of previous crashes, including the one in which the car coasted into the railing. We had a soundbite from city official Todd Walterman in there. Uh, while we know the city has really kind of failed to comment or declined to comment thus far because of the investigation, why not just replace it with something that is more sturdy? Uh, because as we've seen with this situation here, the city leaves itself a lot of potential liability as a result of accidents happening there. Any idea why that's the case? That's one of the things we're gonna be looking into because we have records dating back as far as 1931. That's wow. when this bridge was built, and it was originally built as a speed circle in the middle of that bridge. Then we have records from 1997 where there were renovations, and the renovations show, again, not secured. Now, after 97 is when those crashes happened that gave the city a warning that, hey, this might be a problem. So why after 2012 didn't that happen? We would like to know. One of the answers might be cost, that it would cost a lot to do. But again, when you look now, the cost is just tremendous to think about the fact that huge pieces of concrete and stone fell onto a highway below. How can you not understand that that could lead to somebody dying? Chris Hayes with a couple of great reports here this morning. We're going to be continuing to follow the great work that you've done on these two stories. We thank you for your time on this Sunday morning. All right, still to come here on Postscripts, we're going to take a look at what's trending up, what's trending down, and a trend to watch for the coming week. We'll be right back.
With Christopher Ave off this week, I'm handling our trending topics. And if you're like me, you're probably a bit worn down by the Kavanaugh confirmation process and the political climate in Washington. That's why I'm going to stick to sports today, hockey to be specific. Although, as the Blues start a new season, fans may share the same mix of apprehension and anger they have right now for politics. Nonetheless, what's trending up? Well, the Blues' young guns getting a shot to shine. I'm focusing on Jordan Cairo and Robert Thomas right now, ages 20 and 19 respectively. Post-Dispatch sports columnist Ben Hockman called Cairo Vince Komen on skates. Last season, he won the OHL's Most Outstanding Player of the Year. The Blues' first draft pick to do so since Doug Gilmore. As for Thomas, he was the OHL's playoff MVP after a regular se season that featured 24 goals and 51 assists in just 49 games played. Needless to say, the future looks bright for the Blues with these two. Trending down, the Blues' decision to switch exclusively to mobile ticketing. To be fair, it is a trend and it's here to stay in sports and entertainment. The Blues believe it will be a more convenient way to save paper as well as a more convenient way for fans to get in and prevent ticket fraud. I think it will do all those things, but I also know there are a lot of people out there who aren't as tech savvy who will find it more complicated to get into games. And a trend to watch, the man between the pipes, Jake Allen, the latest Blues netminder with a target on his back from an increasingly frustrated fan base. We've seen him be brilliant and baffling. The Blues' success may very well depend on how he plays, but let's not allow the season and Allen to be a little bit more difficult than it already has. Give the guy a little bit more time before running him out of town. And that does it for this edition of Postscripts, a special programming note to tell you about. For six weeks, starting October 20th, we will air on Saturday mornings at 5.30, but the same time next week here on Postscripts. We'll see you then. Have a great Sunday. With Christopher Ave off this week, I'm handling our trending topics. And if you're like me, you're probably a bit worn down by the Kavanaugh confirmation process and the political climate in Washington. That's why I'm going to stick to sports today, hockey to be specific. Although, as the Blues start a new season, fans may share some of the same mix of apprehension and anger they have for politics right now. Nonetheless, we'll take a look at what's trending up, and that is the Blues' young guns getting a shot to shine. I'm focusing on Jordan Cairo and Robert Thomas, ages 20 and 19 respectively. Post-Dispatch sports columnist Ben Hockman called Cairo Vince Coleman on skates. Last season, he won the OHL's Most Outstanding Player of the Year, the first Blues draft pick to do so since Doug Gilmore. As for Thomas, he was the OHL's playoff MVP after a regular season that featured 24 goals and 51 assists in just 49 games played. Needless to say, the future looks bright with these two. Trending down, the Blues' decision to switch exclusively to mobile ticketing. To be fair, it is a trend that is here to stay in sports and entertainment. The Blues believe it will be a more convenient way for fans to get into games, a way to save paper, and will help prevent ticket fraud. I think it will do all of those things, but I also know there are a lot of people out there who aren't as tax savvy who will find it more complicated to get into games. And a trend to watch, the man behind the pipes, between the pipes I should say, and that's Jake Allen, the latest Blues netminder with a target on his back from an increasingly frustrated fan base. We've seen him be brilliant, but also baffling. And the Blues' success may depend on how far he can take them. So let's allow the season and Allen to play out a bit more before running him out of town. 
And that does it for us here on Postscript's Game Day with Martin Kilcoin, Zach Choate, and Charlie Marlowe is up next. We'll be back here next week, same time, same place for Postscript's. We hope you have a great Sunday and a great week.